Chapter Twenty Five of The Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Former. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Five. Shortly after dawn, the yacht set sail and sped toward Astoria, a hundred miles west. The breeze was a strong thirty-five mile an hour, precursor of the violent winds that roared across the Zormador during the rainy season. Green set every inch of sail he had and took over the helm himself. Steering was not as simple as it had been, for traffic was getting heavy. In an hour he saw no less than forty rollers ranging in size from small merchants not much larger than his own craft to tremendous three-decker rollers of the line from far-off Batram, conveying even larger merchant vessels, high-pooped and richly decorated. Then, as they came to within fifty miles of their destination, small pleasure yachts appeared in increasing numbers, and by the time they saw the white rocket-shaped towers that stretched from horizon to horizon, Green was sweating at the manner in which craft were shooting back and forth in front of him. Medan said, The entire nation is surrounded by these white towers and by many fortresses interspersed between them. Inside the great circle of towers the historians have many rich farms on the plains. The city proper, however, is built on three roaming islands that were captured by their magic many centuries ago. Green raised his eyebrows at this information. Indeed, and where is the vessel that brought the two demons down from the skies? Medon looked blankly at the earthman, though he knew well enough that he was keenly interested in the so-called demons. Oh, uh, it is located close to the palace of the king himself, but not on the hills. It landed on the plain. Hmm. And the strangers will be burned during the festival of the Eye of the Sun? If they have lived, they will be. Green didn't like to think about their dying. If they had, then his problem was solved. He stayed upon this planet and did the best he could here. There was one thing he had to admit. That was having Amra as his wife made such an event not so calamitous as it might have been. She'd keep him so interested that time would pass swiftly, even on this barbarous place. In that case, he thought, why was he hesitating about taking her to earth if he got the chance? No matter where he was, she'd see that life was a whirlpool of action, and she'd only begun to disclose the deeps within her. Give her an education, and what a creature might evolve! What's the matter with you, Green? he said to himself. Don't you know your own mind? Are you so capable of handling physical events, but a complete muck-up when it comes to psychical? Why—' "'Look out!' cried Miran, and Green threw the helm hard aport to avoid crashing into a small freighter. The captain, standing on the foredeck behind his own helmsman, leaned over the rail and shook his fist at Green and cursed. Green cursed back, but after that he didn't allow himself to begin thinking about Amra until he had steered the roller into the break. The rest of the day he was busy getting cleared with the port authorities. Fortunately, he had a letter from the office of the island fortress. It explained why he happened to be in possession of a foreign craft, and also recommended that Green be given a chance to sign up in the Astorian roller fleet if he wished. Even so, 
he had to tell his story so many times to an admiring and amazingly credulous audience that it was dusk before he could get free. Outside the customs building he found Grisquetter waiting for him. "'Where's your mother?' he asked. "'Oh, she knew you'd be tied up for a long time, so she went ahead and got a room in an inn. They're very hard to get during the festival, almost impossible. But you know mother,' said Grisquetter, winking. She gets what she goes after every time. Yes, I'm afraid so. Well, where's this inn? It's clear across town, but it's within sight of the wall that's built around the demon skyship. Wonderful! Rooms must be twice as difficult to get there as on the edge of town. How did Amra do it? She gave the innkeeper three times his asking price, which was high enough and he found a pretext to quarrel with a man who had long ago reserved a room, threw him out, and gave it to us. Ah, and where did she get this money? She sold a ruby to a jeweler who kept shop close to the break. He's sort of shady, I guess, and he didn't give Mother what the ruby was worth. Now, where would she get a ruby or any kind of jewel? Grisquetter grinned crookedly, but delightedly. Oh, I imagine that a certain fat one-eyed merchant captain, who shall remain nameless, must have had one or two rubies within that bag he keeps inside his shirt. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. The question that alarms me is, how did she get it off Miran? He'd sooner lose a quart of blood than one of his precious jewels, and he'd notice its loss quicker than he would the blood. Gritzquetter looked thoughtful. I really don't know. Mother didn't say. He brightened with a smile and said, But I'd like to know how she did it. Maybe she'll teach me some day. She seems to have a lot to teach both of us, said Green. He sighed. Well, I'm eternally indebted to her. No getting out of it. Let's call a rickshaw and see what kind of a place she has selected. Once both had settled in the high back chair of their vehicle, and the two men who pulled it had begun their slow trotting through the crowded streets, Green said, "'Have you any idea where Miran is?' "'Some. Uh, he was detained by the port officers, too, because he had to explain what had happened to his roller. Then he called a rickshaw and left in a big hurry. He had an officer with him—not a naval officer, a soldier from the palace, one of the king's own.' Green felt a sinking sensation. Already? Tell me, does he know where we are staying? Oh, no. When I saw him coming out of the custom house, I hid behind a bale of cotton. Mother had told me to stay out of his sight. She explained how treacherous he is and how he hates you because he thinks you brought all his bad luck upon him. That's only the half of it, Green replied. He was silent for a while, thinking his gaze roving idly over the crowds. There were many foreigners in town, sailors from every nation that had a border on the Zormador, pilgrims who belonged to the far-flung cult of the fish goddess, and had come here for the festival. The majority, however, were Estorians, a fairly tall people, brown or red-haired, green or blue-eyed, with big noses, thick lips, and a slight epicanthic fold. They spoke a guttural, polysyllabic, semi-analytic language. They wore broad-rimmed hats shaped like open umbrellas, tight-necked shirts with long string ties, and pants that were skin-tight from crotch to knee, then ballooned out into many ruffles. 
Little bells tinkled on their ankles, and the women carried canes. All had a fish, a star, or a rocket-shaped tower tattooed on their cheeks. Along the narrow winding street were many little shops, flowering with a variety of articles. Green was intrigued by the magical charms being hawked everywhere. Many of these were little towers, replicas of the large ones that encircled the country. On earth they could have passed for toy spaceships. He bought one. It was made of white painted wood and was about seven inches long. The big flaring fins and landing struts were well reproduced, but there weren't any of the fine details that he could have found in such a toy on earth. There were no holes in the stern or nose for the drive exhaust, or any indications of doors or detector apparatus. He gave it to Grisquetter and leaned back to do some more thinking. The charm hadn't disappointed him, because he had not expected any more than what he'd seen. If, in the beginning, those models had been furnished with every little detail, the passage of many thousands of years would have seen them blunted and reduced to their present state of fuzzy symbolic images. Time ate down to the skeleton of things. He wondered how the charm could have survived up to the present, because it surely must have been over twenty thousand years ago that the prototype, the real spaceship, disappeared, and man sank back to savagery again. Then why had this lasted here, whereas it had not done so on other planets, Earth included? Abruptly he noticed that his rickshaw had stopped. A procession of priests going to the palace of the king, where they will spend all night preaching to the demon, said one of the rickshaw boys. He yawned and stretched. I suppose that it will be a fine burning, since the priests have predicted that the sun will rise at high noon. They are safe doing that, as it has not failed to shine on festival day for a thousand years. Green leaned forward, his hands gripping the sides of his chair, and said, Demon? You mean demons, don't you? Weren't there two of them? Oh, yes, there were, but one died two days ago. Hung himself, I heard, though I can't swear to it, since the priests have released no details. The holy ones have been giving the demons a rough time. Demons? said Gritzquetter, snorting with disbelief and disgust. Doesn't the very fact that one killed himself prove they're not fiends? Everyone knows that a demon can't kill himself. Quite true, my small friend, replied the taxi-man. The priests have admitted their error. They are truly sorry, so they say. They aren't letting the other man loose? Oh, no, because he may still be a demon. Tomorrow at high noon the prisoner goes under the sun's eye, and there meets the only death a demon may know. By fire he was born, by fire he shall perish. Chapter 20, verse 62, or so I remember the high grunchming saying in his sermon yesterday. Myself I'm not much for reading. Too busy making a living, running my legs off, killing myself, so my wife and kids may eat and have clothes on their backs. Green scarcely heard the garrulous rickshaw man. So shocked was he at the news. Had he been too late? What if the man who died was the pilot, and the other one unable to handle the ship? The rest of the ride he was sunk in such deep gloom he hardly saw any of the many sights that Grisquetter kept pointing out. But he did rouse when the boy said, Look, father, there's the king's palace on top of the hill. Beyond that is the ship of the demon. You can't see it from here, 
but you will tomorrow when you go to the burning. Don't be so heartless, said Green, but he looked carefully at the great marble structure that rambled all over the hill. Somewhere below that, probably filled with dirt, undoubtedly forgotten, was just such an entrance as he'd found on the island of the cannibals. He'd also discovered a similar one upon the fortress of Shemdug, the night before when he'd gone exploring and Miran had followed him. The palace, he thought, looked quite romantic and beautiful, enveloped in a dim red haze, cast by the setting sun, which lay directly behind it. Probably it would look different in the harsh glare of day when the dirt and garbage would be so apparent. The area in which Amra had rented the room was one which had once belonged to the rich and the noble, but had decayed when the aristocracy moved their homes elsewhere. The inn before which the rich Shaw boys stopped was a three-story pile of granite blocks. It had an enormous porch and six huge pillars in the images of the fish goddess. Green could not help admiring the building even in its present state of decay because he knew that it must have cost a fortune to build it. The granite would have had to be transported by roller across the Zormador since there would be no stone in this neighborhood. He imagined that the landlord charged high rents and that Amra would have paid a pretty price indeed if she'd given him three times the usual amount. One thing you could say for her when she traveled, she did it in style. The caryatids of the fish goddess also interested him, and at another time he'd have examined them closely by the light of the torches in the hands of the servants standing by them. The cult of the goddess indicated that the original historians must have migrated from the ocean side to the center of the vast and level plains, and here they must have built this imposing city which was to become such a great focus of trade. Its central location made it a great clearing-house for goods from every country bordering the Zarmador. He wondered whether it was pure accident that they had brought with them the charms and the shapes of spaceships and if they'd also accidentally discovered that towers modeled after the charms would stop the roaming islands. Whatever the answer, it lay buried in the prehistoric. "'Hurry up,' said Grisquetter, pulling on Green's hand. "'Mother has a surprise for you, but don't tell her I told you.' "'That's nice,' replied Green absently, his mind still upon the news of the Earthman's death. "'Hang it all!' Why must he always be kept in suspense, must always be improvising from moment to moment, always in the dark, never knowing what was coming next, nor what he was going to have to do? Oh, for one day of peace and assurance! Father! What? said Green, startled out of his reverie, and stopping halfway up the steps to the porch. Suddenly something black and small launched itself at him and landed on his shoulder. "'Lady Locke, why are you shivering so?' "'Better run, Dad,' said Grisquetter. "'There's Midon coming out of the door, and soldiers behind him.' He ended with a wail. "'Mother!' The sight of Amra, Inzox, and the children being marched out between musket-men was enough for Green. He turned away and spoke softly but savagely. "'Keep your backs to them. Don't look back.' We're far enough away in the dark so they might not recognize us, especially in this crowd. A minute later he and the boy and the cat were looking around the corner of a large building. 
they saw the soldiers commandeer a rickshaw and put the prisoners in it then four of them walked beside the vehicle as it was pulled away they they'll be put in the tower of the grass cat said the boy shaking with fury oh that devil miran that fat old devil he's the one who accused mother of witchcraft i know i know he didn't accuse her said green but me she's guilty through association with me well at least we'll know where they are for a while there go miran and the soldiers back into the hotel waiting for us said green they'll have a long wait well let's go first things first we'll buy a ticket see the ship i have to know where it's located what type it is etc luckily i have enough money on me to do that but we'll be broke then you have any ten oxar that's not much but it's enough to pay for a rickshaw ride to the windbreak at the box office green bought two tickets then walked up the steep flight of steps with grisquetter at the top he found himself in a large group standing on a platform beneath a wooden roof this was for the curious who wanted to get a preview of the demon's vessel tomorrow the gates would be opened to admit a vast crowd who would sit on the hard wooden seats of the amphitheater that had been built fairly close to the ship the ship itself was an earth naval vessel a two-man scout it pointed its needle nose upward resting upon eight jet struts gleaming in the moonlight its naval insignia a green globe crossed with rocket and olive branch was a smudge in the shadows nevertheless he could make it out he felt his breast swell and he choked with homesickness ah so near yet so far he murmured even if i get to you then what what if the poor devil of a survivor turns out to be a navigator still he ought to know enough to get her off the ground and into space and from there on with interstellar drive we ought to be able to get home somehow he sounded plaintive even to himself for he knew how vast space was and how complicated astro-mathematics was and of course there was no guarantee that the earthman would even be a navigator he might just be an officer or perhaps a civilian official who was being ferried in one of the swifter small ships then there was the awful possibility that the vessel might have landed here because there was something wrong with it and that it could not rise again even if it had a full crew in fact that was the most logical explanation he sighed and turned to the boy this may be for nothing but we can't just sit down and watch let's take off for the windbreak what are we going to do there asked grisquetter as they walked down the steps well we're not going back to the yacht green answered soldiers will be waiting there to arrest us no we'll go to the other side of the break stealing another roller isn't going to get us in any more trouble than we're already in the boy's eyes widened what are we doing that for we must return to the island fortress of shimdug what why that's a hundred miles away yes i know and we won't be able to make the speed going back that we did coming we'll have to do quite a lot of tacking to sail against the wind and that'll eat up our time but there's nothing else to do if you say so father i believe you but what is there on shimdug not on in 
Grizzquetter was a bright lad. He was silent for a minute, so silent Green could imagine he heard the wheels turning within his head. Then he said, There must be a cave on Shimdug, like the one on the cannibal's island. And you must have gone into it that night we stayed in the break. I remember waking up and hearing you and Mother say something about your being gone and about Miran following you. Griswetter paused, then said, If there is a cave entrance there, why haven't other people gone into it? Because it has been declared taboo, off-limits, by the priests of Astoria. It was done so long ago that I imagine that the priests themselves have forgotten why they forbade its access to men. But it's not hard to reconstruct the historical causes. Once, I suppose, the island was populated by cannibals. At the time the historians captured the island, they exterminated the aborigines. They found the cave mouth was a holy place for the savages. So, thinking that it held demons, and it does in a way, they built a wall around it and set up a statue of the fish goddess, facing inward, holding in her hand a symbol to restrain the imprisoned fiends from breaking loose. That symbol, of course, is the same charm that is sold on the streets of Astoria that circumscribes the country and the island of Shimdug. It is the same as the spaceship that landed near the king's palace. Green hailed a rickshaw and continued his account while they rode through the still-crowded streets. There was so much noise that he felt quite safe talking, provided he kept his voice soft. By the time they had reached the northern end of the windbreak, Green had told the boy all he thought he should hear at that time. If later on his trip to Shemdug proved successful, he would enlighten him even more. For the present he was concerned with the problem of getting transportation. Fortunately they found almost at once a nice little yacht with speedy lines and a tall mast. The craft must have belonged to a wealthy man, for a watchman sat close to it before a little fire just outside his shed. Green walked up to him, and when the fellow rose, his hand suspiciously resting upon his spear, Green struck him on the jaw, then followed with a hard right to the pit of his stomach. Grisquetter completed the job by hitting him over the head with a length of pipe he'd picked up off the ground. Green emptied the handbag of the watchman and was pleased to see several coins of respectable denominations. Probably his life savings, he said. I hate to rob him, but we have to have money, Grisquetter. Do you remember those slaves who were drinking and gambling outside the striped ape inn? Run to them and offer them six donkin if they'll tow us out of the break. Tell them we're paying them so much because it's so late at night, and also to keep their mouths shut. Grinning, the boy ran off. Green hauled the limp body of the unconscious watchman behind the hut, bound and gagged him and threw a tarpaulin over him. Grisquetter returned, leading six noisy and reeling men, sturdily built, with legs and backs big-muscled from hauling rollers. At first Green thought he ought to try to make them keep quiet, then decided that it would look more natural if he let them talk as loudly as they wished. There was a festive air over the city tonight, and more than one yacht was going out for a moonlight cruise. Once out on the plain, Green threw the promised money to the slaves and cried, Have a good time! To himself he muttered, Because tomorrow may be your last day. Already he had a presentiment 
of what might happen if he succeeded in tonight's work. There was no telling what forces he might be unloosing. As he said to the boy, there were demons imprisoned in the bowels of the island of Shimdug. End of chapter 25